0: Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer, and as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. I've gotten a lot of requests over the last few months from people asking if I can do more on woodworking, and especially timber framing. So today's episode is for you good folks. Today I'll be speaking with Skip Dewhurst, who has been a professional woodworker for more than 30 years, and has taught over 100 classes in furniture making, woodworking, timber framing, and natural building at places like Rocky Mountain Workshops, Dartmouth College, Rancho Masatal, Bonafide, Mao Organic Farm in Hawaii, and Yestermorrow. In this interview, Skip talks about the differences between the main styles of timber framing around the world box framing, cruck framing, and aisled framing, the many types of joints and tools used in the trade, and even gives practical advice for owner builders and novices starting out. We go deep into different infill materials and techniques for the wall systems and the different considerations to take into account if you're building in a cold or hot climate. There are a lot of technical terms in this episode and a lot of explanations of techniques that may not make sense unless you see pictures, so I've put a whole lot of resources and visual aids in the show notes on the website to make it easier to follow along. So just go to AbundantEdge.com and click to the podcast tab in the navigation bar to find this and all previous episodes. Now I'll turn things over to Skip Dewhurst. Hey, Skip, thank you so much for taking the time today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you.
1: Are things starting to get a little cold where you are up in New England? Uh, It's actually been a really warm fall. It's a beautiful sunny day today. We've actually just had one hard frost. That's kind of unusual for being towards the end of October.
0: Wow. Yeah, I actually just got back from New Jersey where I was visiting family for a little while and the weather was gorgeous up until last week, so you're getting a pretty mild autumn, it seems.
1: Yeah.
0: Fantastic, well, hey, how about we jump into some of the questions here? I know I've got a lot of content that I'd love to cover with you. So, before we get into all the timber framing and woodworking stuff, could you tell our listeners a bit about yourself,
1: your background, and how you got started in woodcrafts? Sure. Um, First, I became interested in woodworking, mainly uh, inspired by my grandmother. My grandmother, whenever my brothers and sisters would visit, she would um, get us involved in different arts and craft projects. And she was the kind of person that if she needed something, she would just build it. And that gave me the confidence to do the same. And I became very interested in woodworking. And, you know, I guess in high school shop class, I learned a bit and there was always tools around the house that I started using more and more and took a furniture design class in college and worked in cabinet shops during the summers in college. And um, shortly after that began my own woodworking business building furniture. And um, always had a dream of building my own house. And so about 22, 23 years ago, um, built a timber frame home. And shortly after I built that home, other people started asking me to build timber frames for them. So since then I've been building houses and barns and pavilions. And um, and I continued with my uh, furniture business, um, but I keep pretty busy building furniture and timber frames and have been teaching both woodworking and timber framing uh, for about 20 years, I think.
0: Marvelous. That's a wonderful story. I know uh, I was also inspired a lot by people in my family who kind of pushed me to make some of the things that I talked about or wanted rather than just go out to purchase them. Now, I know that timber framing is not just one narrow definition, but rather a group of different techniques from around the world. So, let me start by asking, what is timber framing and how
1: is it different than a stud frame or post and beam structure? Um, That's a great question. Uh, uh, And different people will give you different answers, but in the timber framing world, I would say that uh, most timber framers would answer that question by saying timber frame construction has mortise and tenon joinery held together with pegs. Um, stud con- construction is smaller members, usually 2 by 4 2 by 6 2 by 8 They're held together with nails. And post and beam can be large timbers, but they're usually held together with metal brackets and fasteners. And um, again, so timber frame is mostly uh, held together with mortise and tenon joints held together with pegs.
0: Now the real art in timber framing, I know, is in those joints that you mentioned. Could you list off some of the most common joints other than just mortise and tenon and
1: describe how they're made and what they're used for? Yeah, so I would say the mortise and tenon is really the workhorse of timber framing. And there's lots of variations on the mortise and tenon, but uh, I'd say 90 to 95% of the joints in a timber frame are going to be mortise and tenon. Um, some other joints would be spline joints, which is, again, it's that's a variation of a mortise and tenon. A spline joint um, is, uh, some people call it a loose tenon. Um, it's interesting the French call it a prisoner tenon. Um, but it's... Uh, all the members that are come together would all have a mortise in them and then a separate piece would be the loose tenon that would fit in and be pegged in the mortise members. Um, And so that's an interesting one and that's that's often used in three or four way connections where you have multiple pieces coming into a post um, very close to each other where if you just did a traditional mortise and tenon there would not be enough room to have uh, good strong connections. So the, that uh, loose tenon enables you to make a real strong connection and and not take too much wood out of the posts. Other, uh, other joints would be a scarf joint, which is uh, used to make longer timbers. Uh, if you're, if you're, uh, Sawyer can't saw say a 40 or 50 foot timber and you have a a big barn or need a large timber you can scarf together shorter timbers to make a long timber it's never going to be as strong as a tree would have grown but uh, it's a good compromise it enables you to get a longer timber by scarfing two pieces together and um, it's there's lots of variations of a scarf joint but um, the most common one um is uh, imagine a long angle that's cut and then sometimes they have mortise and tenons at the end of the scarf joint um, In, trying to go ahead
0: no no sorry um so for those of us who aren't familiar with some of the jargon can you just describe what a mortise is what a tenon is and and how they go together and are kept that way
1: sure so uh imagine a tenon being um, a narrower part of a beam that uh, and, and often in a timber frame it'll be two inches wide and it'll be the full height of the beam and then a mortise will be the receiving it, it'll receive the tenon so it'll be a slot that the tenon slides into and it will there will be a peg at least one peg sometimes uh, depending on the size of the timber, sometimes three or four pegs, and the peg will go through both the mortise and the tenon, and that is what holds the joint together. Um, okay,
0: so it's like, um, I guess to, to put it in other construction terms, there's the female end and there's the male end, and the tenon is the male end going into the mortise, which is the cutout recess, and the peg cuts through both of those and holds them, keeping that tenon from slipping out. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: that is correct. Okay. So and now, no, go ahead. Uh, uh, I was going to say another variation of the mortise and tenon joint, and it is, it's actually one of my favorite joints. Um, it, imagine that, that same joint that we just described in tension. The only thing that's holding it together is the pegs. And so there's a variation that is much stronger. It's called a wedged half-dovetail, and it's a half-dovetail-shaped tenon that fits into a, a full dovetail-shaped mortise. and then there's uh, a wedge that fills the upper portion of the wed- of the dovetail-shaped void. So the wedge shape of the tenon and a peg makes that joint very, very strong in tension. And that's, that's actually one of the strongest joints that I know how to make. And it's often used for a tie beam, which is tying the walls of a timber frame together.
0: Sure. And I'll put links to some visualizations, maybe some manuals or some other resources so that if anybody's having trouble visualizing what we're talking about here, they can find pictures that'll help it to make more sense. Okay, um, great. Now, like I was saying, Timber framing is a number of different practices and traditions from around the world. It's not just one thing. Could you tell us the difference between box frames, cruck frames, and aisled frames, and maybe give me an example of how each
1: one might be used? Sure. Um, I'm I'm going to start with cruck frames because I think that's the easiest to visualize. So, um, and and probably one of the earlier versions. So a cruck frame is a frame that's made out of naturally curved timber. The primary structural members are called crux, and what they are is big, huge, curved trees. And that tradition came out of, uh, I, I think in England, um, the trees were almost all saved for, uh, or the, the big, tall, straight trees were used in the shipbuilding industry, and um, peasants who wanted to build their houses were not allowed to cut down um, trees by, you know, I think there was Royal decree that they, there was a lot of trees that they were not able to cut down. So they were left with the scraggly curvy ones at the edges of fields that, you know, curved because they were growing um, from the edges of forests and curving out to get the light from the field. And those curved members um, were kind of, undesirable wood for for building ships masts and things like that they were not used very often although they were used for making the prows of ships and certain curved parts in ships but that was for the most part undesirable wood and so peasants made learned how to construct houses out of that and they utilized those curved members to hold up the ridge of the house and support the rafters so Visually, what a cruck frame looks like is two almost often bookmatched, but two similar curves that come up to the peak or close to the peak of the roof and support the weight of the structure. And then smaller timbers infilled around it to, to fill out the shape of the house. Generally, those cruck frames were not real large structures just because those curved Pieces tended to be smaller, so you wouldn't generally see really large structures made that way. Um, some some um, barns were made that way, but it was primarily house construction. Um, and the aisled timber frames uh, mainly came out of the farming industry, um, making big, large iled barns. And the the purpose for the aisles was to separate where the animals stayed and where the hay was stored or different functions that happened on the farm. So the, the isled barns were designed specifically for agricultural use and farmers to um, make an, a separation of the different spaces in large barns. And then box framing was typically more house construction or um, just more open floor plan where the, the posts and the frame didn't delineate the uses of the house, it was just the the perimeter of the frame was the main structural part. And there might be posts in the middle, but the posts didn't necessarily delineate specific use spaces in the building.
0: Fantastic, so box frames are probably what you're more likely to see anytime that you're building kind of a modest structure or a modern house?
1: Yes. Excellent.
0: Now let's go into some of the varieties and intricacies of types of timber framing from around the world. I know there's many variations, and perhaps the most famous ones are the traditions from England, Germany, and Japan. How have these different styles informed your own trade, and what are some of the most notable points
1: that someone could draw from from each of these traditions? Um, well, I would say, uh, I learned the craft in America and America really, you know, being the melting pot, um, the English and German traditions and and to a lesser extent, the Japanese traditions really informed American timber framing when it first started, um, immigrants from England and Germany and France. and and many other countries, but the immigrants came and brought timber framing to America and just like music, um, uh, all the different uh, cultures that came and brought their musical styles influenced amazing music that happened in America. The same thing happened with timber framing. Um, You had uh, immigrants bringing their versions of the craft that they learned in their country here and teaching other people, and American timber framing really was a uh, an amalgamation of the timber framing from England and Germany, and again, to a lesser extent Japan, but certainly that influenced it as well um, and I would say that uh, the main timber framing in new England that you see is a, is a real blend of those different traditions. And with, with uh, some traditions that started right here in America, some changes from that. And it's interesting to look at the buildings that were made here in the 1800s and even earlier, and then to look at buildings that were made in England and Germany before that time and to see the changes that had happened. And there was a system that was, developed in America because of uh, the different timber framing traditions that came here and the, the system that developed here developed because of the different traditions but also because the wood source here was so much different than what was in Europe at the time and so the just like with with music um, different Parts of those traditions really influenced it and certain people took either what they learned From say a German craftsman and put their their spin on it Um, But they also took what they learned from other people and it really evolved into a kind of a new kind of timber framing that it is Has subtle differences. It still uses some of the exact same joints but the system of layout and the system of marking the timbers was quite a bit different. And then modern day timber framing mainly evolved due to use of tools and the fact that the, um, the sawmills were able to produce timbers that are very accurate in, in size and very well milled so that they don't vary from one end of the timber to the, to the next.
0: Okay. So they're working with more of the consistencies that are available commercially now. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Now, could you tell our listeners about what some of the advantages and disadvantages of timber frame building are? Are there any places or climates where you would advise against
1: using this method? Um, I guess the places where I would advise against using it is, uh, any place that, uh, doesn't have suitable trees (laughs) Uh, sure that's a good criteria (laughs) if a place has suitable trees um then i think it probably is a suitable place to build timber framing um i've built timber frames a lot in new england and um i've also built quite a few in latin america and i i begin um in latin america i had been teaching natural building classes down there for years, and the folks um, that hosted the natural building classes kept on asking us to build, I, I say us, my my wife and myself, uh, Elizabeth Moniz and myself, have been going down and teaching these natural building classes, and the folks at Rancho Mastatal, where we had been teaching, had asked us to do timber framing classes because they knew that we knew how to do that. And we kept on saying no, and it was primarily because of tools, and I didn't think that we could get well-milled timbers down there. A chainsaw mill is an amazing thing, but it's really hard to get um, well-sawn timbers. And especially teaching a class, it's difficult to to teach a class if the timbers aren't of fairly good quality. So we kept on saying no. And then one year he said, "Hey, somebody uh, moved in 10k down the road with a wood miser." Would you do a timber frame class now? And we said yes. And uh, I can't remember how many years ago that was, but I think there's 14, 14 or 15 timber frames in that little village now. Um, and one of the advantages of doing it in in warmer climates is that it actually uses less wood to build a timber frame if you're not also building another frame outside of it to uh, be the enclosure system or the, the, where you put insulation. So for an uninsulated building, I believe that you can use less wood by using a timber frame. And the reason for that is, instead of having a two by four every 16 or 24 inches on center, you can have a larger timber, say an eight by eight, that might be eight or 12 foot apart from each other. So if you did the math on that, and there's there's a lot more to it than that, obviously. But if you do the math on that, if you're just building a frame, a timber frame can often use less wood than traditional stick framing, and sure. less wood also means less sawing because um, the same volume of wood in an eight by eight, you'd have to make much more cuts to make a bunch of two by eights. Sure. Um. Obviously, you need appropriate sized trees for that. So that brings me into one of the disadvantages of it. I, I, I live in a timber frame house in Vermont, um, and it obviously it's an insulated house. We all, in, in colder climates, we all live in insulated houses now. The one disadvantage of a timber frame is if you're going to build a timber frame, you certainly want to see a timber frame. And so that means you need to put the insulation to the outside of the frame. And so in a way that requires a redundant system. The frame is the structural skeleton, if you will, that holds up the house, but it doesn't offer an insulative cavity As if you want to still see the timbers. So you have to build an insulative cavity outside of the timbers, and that uses more wood. It doesn't have to be um, structural. Really, all it has to do is be a cavity for the insulation and has to yet yeah, need to be able to hang your siding and your windows and doors on it but it's not holding up the snow load of the roof because that's taken care of by the timber frame so it is a bit of a redundant building system if you're going to insulate it and you still want to see the full depth of the timbers so i would say that's that's one of the main disadvantages of timber framing and i used to when i first started timber framing i would say i was a purist and i was just way into the history and the pure function of a timber frame but uh, as time goes on I've certainly um, turned a little bit and I believe oftentimes uh, a timber frame hybrid approach is appropriate and in fact right now I'm in the middle of designing uh, a large structure for somebody and it is a hybrid It, it it's mainly a timber frame but it has two by 12 rafters and the main reason for that. Is uh, he wanted no posts in the middle of the floor upstairs, and uh, he didn't want to go through the expense of say stress skin panels on his roof. So, and he didn't want to have the uh, redundancy of timbered rafters and then throwing insulative cavity uh, timbered depth on top of that. So we just went with two by twelve. Um, <laughs> Uh, two by twelves that are 24 in, inches on center that'll give them insulation and it'll be the structure for the roof.
0: Sure so, that makes sense. I'm yeah. actually I'm a lot like you when I first got started in natural building I thought I was going to be a total purist. Uh, I specialized in cob and I was looking for every opportunity to put cob buildings around the world that I could and as I got more experienced and, and went to different areas of the world where cob was not the most appropriate building method. I've really come around to seeing the value in hybrid structures like you were talking about and how you can kind of maximize the benefits of the materials that you have around you while also mitigating a lot of the disadvantages that would make it either inappropriate or
1: just impossible to build with in in a new area.
0: So that definitely rings true for me.
1: Good. yeah I, th- I think that's in all things you know I mean that's really the permaculture ap- approach you know yeah <laughs> yeah taking uh taking advantage of all the resources and all the information at hand and using it in the most appropriate way, and yeah being a purist in anything sometimes isn't the best approach,
0: yeah, maybe unless you stay put and you can be a purist in you know whatever local bio region you're working in, but uh my reach has gotten a lot broader than that. Um, So, okay, so you talked in great detail about how to build and accommodate insulation for a cold climate. And I know you've also touched on your work down at Rancho Mastatal in Costa Rica, which is a tropical environment. Can you tell me how you would amend or make appropriate a timber frame building for a tropical climate?
1: Yeah, so most of the buildings that we've built down there have been single stories. So they didn't need to be an eight by eight post. To me, that would be a waste of wood. For a small structure, so we actually kind of modified um, the the sizes of our joinery. Um, typically, um, when we're dealing with the eight by eight posts, we would use two inch tenons and and obviously two inch mortises to account those tenons. And sometimes with smaller uh, timbers, we'll go to an inch and a half wide tenon. Um, down in Costa Rica, and also we've taught in Nicaragua and Hawaii, we've Um, built with smaller timbers because they didn't need to be so big there's no snow loads down there and if we're just building a a single floor building we've actually uh, used timbers as small as five by fives and gone with um, a combination of inch and a half tenons and in some places even one inch tenons Um, we built out of lots of different types of wood down in Costa Rica and Nicaragua, and some of them are hardwood, and there's absolutely no reason um, for some of those joints to have large um, tenons. So in some of those cases, we've literally used one-inch tenons and mortises. Um, and as far as the infill goes, we have done some pretty interesting, um, well, wattle and daub is is a, a tradition from well, it's it's been used all over the world, but in timber frames, you specifically see it in infill frames all over Europe, and we have used that technique down in Costa Rica, and we've also done it with a combination of um, bamboo slats and also just um, uh, tongue and groove wood slats um, with um, just with uh, Trim holding it to the frame.
0: Okay. Yeah. Sure.
1: So yeah, I'd say you know just boards and wattle and daub and bamboo, um, and also we we've used cob uh, on a couple of timber frames as well, and we just found it used less material if we did wattle and daub.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can always build a little bit thinner on your walls with wattle and daub. Yes. Nice. Now,
1: let's switch gears here a
0: little bit. I want to talk about some of the properties of timber framing. And I know this is going to seem counterintuitive to many of listeners who, since wood is obviously flammable, will probably think that uh, timber framing is going to be a very flammable style of building. But especially with larger diameter wood, it's actually more fire
1: resistant than conventional
0: stud framing. Can you explain to us why that is?
1: Uh, I think it has to do with uh, less corners and less surface area of wood with um, and also less little pockets Um, you know with with two by construction imagine again two by material 16 or 24 on center. There's lots of little pieces um, and they're fairly close together. So if a fire or if a heat source was near any one of those, um, the chances of it catching on fire are you know, gonna be related to how close it was to, to the heat source. And with timbers, um, they're much further apart, so they're just less likely to be right near the heat source. And um, the mass of them and the, and the less corners because there's less pieces, and oftentimes in large timbers, uh, the corners will be chamfered. And it's really those corners that are the you know, the thin part of wood that is most flammable. And so the, just the, the large mass, I mean, imagine taking a, a torch or a match for that matter, you know, think of two by fours as kindling and uh, a large timber as a log, you're not gonna light a fire by holding a match to a log, but you would light a log by getting a bunch of kindling burning. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great visual. And uh, the way it's been explained to me too is like a new growth forest with a lot of small diameter trees is way more likely to go up in flames than an old growth forest with you know huge trees that are possibly hundreds of years old. Just that density offers a lot of protection and. It's one of the reasons why forest fires were far less devastating in the past.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say a timber frame won't catch fire, but no. uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's, yeah that, I think that's a good analogy.
0: Now that you've uh, sort of given us an idea of how timber framing works and some of its properties, let's talk about the tools that make it all happen. And this is always my favorite part because I love traditional woodworking tools. What are a few of the most common timber framing tools and how do you feel about sticking to the traditional hand tools versus electrical ones?
1: All right, um, so a, a handsaw and a chisel with a mallet are The primary tools in timber framing besides the layout tools so a, a steel square or a framing square um, is is absolutely necessary for laying out as well as uh, chalk line and tape measure um, and for making the mortises uh, a boring machine which is, some people refer to it as a beam drill but imagine it's uh, uh, maybe you can link to a picture of one of these but imagine it's a drill press that you sit on and crank two handles and an, an uh, auger bit cuts into the wood and that. You would make multiple holes and then clean out the corners and the sides with the chisel and a mallet um, and with just those few tools you can build an entire timber frame and I teach timber framing probably oh five or six times a year and almost always in the classes we um, focus on hand tools but we Introduce power tools just to show how it's done professionally and for certain cuts um, Like long rip cuts on a rafter tail sometimes we'll demonstrate How to do it with a rip saw or an axe, but oftentimes it's just more practical if you have 18 rafters And you have to make a long rip cut on them to do that with a circular saw Um, so I guess that kind of segues right into the, with the advent of electrical tools, it certainly makes certain operations faster. Um, but there is a real, especially when you're learning, um, you learn a lot more about the properties of wood if you're cutting it with a hand tool. A circular saw will cut right through a knot um, and you'll feel it a little bit if you're attuned to using the tool, but that if you have a nice sharp blade on there and you're using it properly, it'll cut right through a knot without really hesitating. When you're chiseling and you hit a knot, you'll know it and you'll learn a lot about the wood. And that's one of the things that we always encourage um, for many reasons when we're teaching is to try to avoid knots in your joinery. One, because they're harder to cut through. And two, a knot is obviously where a branch grew out of the tree and it's an interruption of the straight grained wood fibers and it tends to be denser material. And it's it's not pleasant to cut through with hand tools. And it also, depending it's on where, where the knot is in the joint, um, it can make it weaker. And so we encourage people to learn to lay out and, and avoid knots as best they can. There's sure. always, you know, sometimes there's going to be a knot, right, in a joint. But we try to avoid them in, in the primary joints. Um, another uh, electrical tool, well, um, let me i 'd be remiss if i didn 't mention axes and ads as um, those are some of my favorite tools to use and that 's we don 't really use axes for making tenons um, so much, although many people do especially in in uh, England and germany or or did way in the past but I use them a lot for housings um, we, we haven 't talked about housings yet, but um, briefly, wherever you have a tenon piece coming into a mortise piece, if you, if you have a, a beam that has a tendon on it and it's coming into a, um, a post that has a mortise on it, it'll often also have what's called a housing. And what the housing is, is um, it accepts the full width of the beam. And it's usually an, uh, about an inch deep. And it, um, so therefore the beam is resting not only just on its tenon but it's also the full width of the beam is housed into the post. Is that making sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So oftentimes I'll use an axe to <laughs> cut out those housings. Um, and axes and adzes, before there were um, accurate sawing, obviously people chopped down trees and hewed them with an axe to make timbers. Brilliant. Um, so,
0: so and and an axe hey, it came out great. That's why some of these timber frames around the world are hundreds, if not I mean, there's a couple of examples of 1,000-year-old buildings yes. that are still still
1: up. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, an axe is just an amazing tool. Um, and let me jump to the future and say a chain mortiser is an amazing tool as well. And what a chain mortiser is, imagine that same boring machine or that beam drill that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine an electric chainsaw version of that that has actually a wide chain that sometimes is... Um, five or so chains wide and it is uh, it looks kind of like a drill press but then it's it's an electrical chainsaw press if you will that has a fence that goes against the side of the beam and you plunge it down to the required depth of the mortise and it'll actually cut a square uh, hole into the timber and so you can make um a mortise let's say two by eight inch long mortise you can make in a minute or just over a minute whereas if you're doing that with a boring machine you'd bore uh, probably uh, four holes and then chisel it square and that might take you a half an hour or an hour if you were beginning sure that's a huge jump in efficiency yes and so and um Every, most people are familiar with a circular saw, and in timber framing, uh, we have many different sizes of circular saws. And we also use chainsaws quite a bit to uh, to rough out joinery. But um, large circular saws certainly make cutting something like a scarf joint um, very quick. Whereas if you did that with a rip saw and an axe, it takes quite a bit longer. And another real. Yeah. Rip- another amazing tool, which actually is as far as electric tools go, I got to say it's one of my favorites. It's a very expensive tool. It's a portable bandsaw mill uh, or a portable bandsaw. And it, imagine a bandsaw kind of flipped upside down. So instead of putting wood on the table and running it through the blade, Mm -hmm. you have a smaller version of that tool and you flip upside down and the table runs on the wood and you can cut yeah. You know, the, the one that I'm familiar with, you can cut through 12 inches of timber with this tool and it cuts very accurately and it's just a very fast way to do certain joints.
0: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That was not one of the more common tools that you would use outside of that. Mostly I've uh, seen portable bandsaws for metal work, but I could see that being
1: extremely useful. Yes.
0: That actually reminds me of one of the things that I learned from years on construction sites is people would often tell me like, yeah, of course you want to work up to using electronic or even gas powered tools because of the efficiency and stuff that you gain. But there's a ton to be learned from starting with hand tools and the more intimate relationship you're going to have with the process and the materials that you're working with that will inform and keep you careful when you're using the much more powerful electric or, or gas-powered tools. And I've definitely found that to be true in my own experience. It sounds like that's the method that you go through when you're teaching new students as well.
1: Yes, that's true. And, again, we primarily teach with hand tools, and we often introduce uh, the power tools, mainly as a demonstration, um, the last day of class to, sh- to show, you know, now that you've learned that if we showed them the first day, everybody would be mad at us. Then we said, Oh no, you have yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it with hand tools. But when you show them on the last day and say, if you're going to do this as a profession, or if you're going to cut a big frame, sometimes it's literally worth it to buy that tool and use it for the frame, the resell value on a lot of those tools if you cut one frame uh, with that tool you, and that, you know, you're not going to become a professional timber frame where you just wanted to build your own house or your own barn, you can turn around and sell that tool for almost as much as you paid for it. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there are used, used tools out there on the market. And so that's oftentimes what we direct um, people who are just going to do one pro- project to you know, buy a used tool and then turn around and sell it once they've cut their frame. Because it Smart. does save a lot of time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I mean, even even as I've become more professional with my contracting operations, I always look for used tools first, partly just because so many of the tools that were built, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, were built a lot better than the new ones. And frankly, if they're still alive now, chances are they're good enough that can still be repaired and refurbished for a lot of uses in the future as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then I would say <laughs> The same is true for chisels. Most of my uh, timber framing chisels are early American chisels that are, you know, at least a hundred years old. Um, I do have um, some newer chisels, but the early American chisels are just incredible quality.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely. And one of my,
1: Oh, I was going to say one of my favorite timber framing chisels that I have is a Japanese uh, timber frame chisel, which is, I, I say new at this point, it's over 20 years old, but it is made in the same tradition, it's a handmade tool that's made in the tradition um, going back hundreds of years, and so it it is as good as any very old chisel, and that's, I'd say, my favorite chisel.
0: Wow, yeah, <laughs> that would be for me too. The Japanese make such good tools. Yes, they do. <laughs> Man, I could geek out with you about tools for the entire episode and beyond, but let's, uh, let's switch gears just one more time here. I know we've already talked about a couple of different methods of infilling timber frame walls, and obviously, you know, the timber frame itself isn't going to give you a completed building, so you're left to fill in all of those spaces, and sometimes that can be a fairly intricate job. You've mentioned possibly putting in an interior frame or an exterior frame, depending on which side you want to see the timbers for aesthetic reasons. Um, and you know, obviously, that needs to be considered spacing-wise for the R value that that would give you for the insulation that you'd be filling it in with. But my question is, how can timber frame be integrated with other natural building materials, um, both for insulation and like wattle and daub that you talked about in tropical environments? What are some of the other materials you've encountered? And are there any that you've worked with that you wouldn't recommend for this style of
1: building well that that's a big question <laughs> yeah there's <laughs> there's so many different materials out there um, and there so uh, let's talk about one product real quick that um, is not considered a natural building product, but I'd mention it because it's probably the most common um, insulative method for timber frames since uh, kind of the resurgence of timber framing in America in the, in the 1970s. And, um, and it helped the resurgence because it kind of solved the problem of uh, if you're going to build a timber frame house, how do you insulate it? And so there was a, a product that came out, and some people call them uh, stress skin panels or curtain wall panels, and it's basically a sandwich of OSB or oriented strand board foam And the structural panels had another layer of OSB on the inside, and then um, if they were non-structural or curtain wall panels, they would be a sandwich of OSB on the outside, foam of whatever thickness you needed for your R-value, and then drywall on the inside. Um, And the redundancy there is you could build a whole house out of stress skin skin panels that had no posts and beams because those are structural insulated panels. Mm -hmm. So, um, that is a very redundant system, but it was quick. Um, but the panels are very expensive and they're made out of generally the foam was expanded polystyrene, or you could also get urethane or one other material. So that was one of the most common ways of insulating timber frames for many years. Now, a lot of people have moved away from that and do uh, an external light frame of of whatever thickness they need for their R value and blow in cellulose. And that seems to work very well. But again, you do have a bit of that redundance of the frame. There's a new product out uh, called Gutex. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't heard of that one. I, I have not worked with it yet, but some friends of mine have. And I need to educate myself more about it. But it's basically sawdust and some sort of binder, and there's lots of air spaces in the sawdust. And it comes in um, large sheets, so you can um, nail it or you can cut it on your table saw. And you can, uh, I'm not sure if nails or screws or if it has special fasteners, but it is a wood insulative product. I always thought that you could make stress skin panels, and it has been done out of more friendly materials, or out, let me say, natural materials, Um, instead of using um, OSB or oriented strand board. um, There has been experiments, and there have been some small companies that did it for a while out of hemp fiber, and then either hemp insulation or soy-based insulation. And again, those were, I, I don't know, experimental is maybe not the right word. They were, those were, as far as I know, short-lived products just because they they were made. Um, they, they were available, but they were shipping was cost prohibitive because they were generally made very far away from New England. Yeah. But I thought that that panelized system, if it could be made out of environmentally friendly materials, actually the panelized system works really well for timber frames. Uh, because you're not having to put up additional two by material outside of the frame. Right. So we have a long way to go with that, but that technology and the ideas are there. We just need the market for it to um, get a company committed to building those products so that we could start using them more. Sure. Um, Have you
0: found any that uh, don't work very well with timber frame or just don't complement the material?
1: Um, no, not really.
0: It's um, pretty versatile. I yeah. mean, I know that there have been like adobe infills in certain parts of Europe and other places where the thermal efficiency isn't nearly as necessary, but I would imagine that also add a ton of heft to the yeah.
1: building. <laughs> yeah, and it just seems like Waddle and daub would make more sense to me than adobe. Just for, Yeah, I would think so too. But, but I mean, Although you do see brick infill um, timber frames in europe and you know adobe is essentially just a sun a a sun baked brick so uh, you know i I guess it could work fine but it just seems to me waddle and Daub uh is is fast because you can fill in all it
0: is yeah that would be faster and um a lot less material overall yeah
1: it seems that way yeah um and and i just want to mention briefly Straw bale. I've done quite a few timber frames with straw bale, and um, I, I love straw bale. But I would say that it's uh, it's tricky to do, and it's a lot more expensive than most people think. It's, it's tricky to do well, and you know, this is true of a lot of building materials. But straw bales, more than any other, um, you absolutely must keep them dry during the entire building process, and. <laughs> Um, water is always the enemy of any building material, but all the more so with straw bale. Sure. Yeah. Like
0: getting it cut and shaped to go in between all of the spaces that a timber frame presents, I would imagine is somewhat labor
1: intensive. Well, it's usually done outside of the frame. Um, but the main, the main thing that makes it labor intensive is getting the proper air sealing Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, if you're going to do an earthen plaster on the inside, um, we've done frames where we've rabbited, a a slot so that the trowel could plaster back behind the timber. So as the timber shrinks a little bit, you don't get a big gap in the plaster and that's, it's an extra step, but it has worked out really, really well. And we've worked with some, some good friends, maybe some folks that, that you know, Ace and Deva who wrote the book, natural builders companion. Mm-hmm. Um, they we worked with them on that technique of just changing a couple of details in the way that we frame to make it easier for them to do their air sealing and plastering
0: nice I've also talked a lot with Siggy Coco about her personal methods of marrying earthen materials straw bales and wood together those dissimilar materials are usually where people have the most trouble
1: hmm yeah but back to your original question I there's not a material that I've encountered or experimented with that I found that did not work well. Nothing nothing comes to mind that I sure. like. Oh, do it's that. mostly
0: just those joints that maybe need some amendments or some consideration so that yeah. they don't, you know, either shrink or pull away or, or anything else. Yes. Nice. So what advice would you give to owner builders who would like to try timber framing and what are some of the common pitfalls that they should avoid?
1: Um, I I guess the advice I would say is, uh, inform yourself, research, uh, uh, take a class. (laughs) Yeah,
0: definitely. Um, it can be very expensive to make a bad cut
1: on a large piece of wood. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that's true. And, you know, and don't be afraid to ask for help. I mean, I I was an owner builder myself and I've worked with a lot of owner builders and I would say, um, a good plan and you know thinking things out thoroughly and asking for help because there's no need to reinvent the wheel there's a need to gather as much information and one of the frustrating things I find about that is different sources give you different information and then you're left with this quandary of like I'm not sure how to decide which one of these um, credible sources I should Um, pay attention to because they're telling me different things. Don't let that paralyze you choose one and go. (laughs) Right. Right. No, that can be very difficult.
0: Yeah. Especially with all the information that's
1: accessible on the web. Yeah. Yeah. The, the paradox of choice definitely comes into play. Exactly. And if you let that paralyze you into not making any choice, then you'll just have your dream that you don't make into a reality for too long. So Mm -hmm. I, I would say it's very important to gather as much information as you can, but at a certain point, yeah, don't let the choices bog you down and hold you back from actually doing it. That's very good advice.
0: Now, like you were talking about taking classes, how would you advise a novice builder sort of begin learning timber frame and traditional
1: woodworking in general? Um, you, you know, one of the best ways is if, if you have the the option or the time is to, join a crew and and uh, go to a timber frame raising Uh, the timber framers guild uh, is an organization that has conferences every year and multiple conferences every year they also have um, organizations and they have publications that um, list classes and they also list raisings and going to raisings and just participating and or watching, watching a timber frame go up, you learn so much about timber framing. Um, but yeah, either taking a class or working on a, on a timber frame crew, um, learning how to cut the joints. Learn, you know, Cutting the joints, after you cut one or two joints, you just get a little bit faster and a little bit more efficient doing it. The hardest part of timber framing is the layout. The accurate laying out of the joints to be cut. Um, again, once once you have cut a few joints, then you're le- less likely to make a mistake, and you're just going to become more efficient at cutting those joints. But the layout is the part that really um, takes a lot of time and is one of the most important parts because. You you might cut a beautiful mortise, but if it's in the wrong place, it's (laughs) (laughs) not going to help out anything at all. (laughs) You didn't do yourself a favor, yeah. (laughs) Um, And that's even professionally, um, we check each other's layout. Um, Erasing a pencil mark isn't that expensive. Um, Getting a new timber often is expensive. So um, even professionally, one person lays out and somebody else checks the layout before any cutting is done. And that yeah, smart. Ha- happens on all, you know, big dollar timbers. You know, if we're cutting a bunch of braces um, or rafters or something like that. We might check one and then, you know, you're just going to make 20 knee braces that are all the same. So mm. um, we don't, you know, in a class situation in the beginning, sure you should check each one, but professionally, we check all the larger timbers, but smaller things like braces and floor joists, um, we generally don't check those because you know there's it's they're simpler and after you've done a bunch of them, you're less likely to make mistakes on those. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. Nice. Well, actually, could you tell us a little bit of, as well about the courses that you teach through Yes Tomorrow?
1: Sure. Well, I I, I think what I'll say is I teach uh, at Yes Tomorrow, but I also teach at uh, quite a few other places. So, um, yeah, at Yes Tomorrow, I teach some woodworking classes, and then I've, uh, I teach, uh, uh, currently I think just two timber frame classes there a year. There was a time a few years back where I was teaching as many as six just at Yes Tomorrow, and that, that became a little bit much, and so we got some other people involved, which is great to have, um, you know, a lot more timber framing instructors there because there was a time where I was teaching, you know, I, I had co-instructors, but I was teaching almost every timber frame class that was there. So now I don't have that pressure on me. There's quite a few other teams that teach timber framing there. But I also teach at uh, Rocky Mountain Workshops out in Colorado, and uh, teach at Rancho Mastatal. And um, this year my wife and I are gonna be teaching a new class in uh, Wood Valley Farm on the Big Island in Hawaii, and that happens in February. Um, Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we've taught out in Hawaii, uh, with seventh generation natural builders. Um, many, uh, it's probably 10 years ago now, um, on Oahu, but yeah, I, I really enjoy traveling around teaching the skill to, to different people. Um, it's, that's one of my favorite things is passing on the knowledge that I learned about, woodworking and timber framing to other people and watching and helping people um, learn and design their own buildings.
0: Marvelous. Well, Skip, before I let you go here, can you give us a little bit of contact information and how people can find some of those courses that you just mentioned and reach out to you?
1: Sure. Um, I would say Rancho Mastatal, I believe it's .org. Um, yep. is the-
0: Contact and I'll, I'll leave that link and links to all the things you're about to mention on the podcast notes uh, on the website as well.
1: Okay. And the, the Hawaii Timber Frame Course is February 6th through the 16th in 2018. And that the link for that is hawaiitimberframecourse.com. And uh, Yes Tomorrow is just Yes Tomorrow. Uh, I can't remember if it's .org or .com. And then... Uh, Rocky mountain workshops and I, I, believe, I think that's also.com.
0: All right. Well, I'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes
1: and, and also throw nope. in, uh, the timber framers guild just because that's just one of the best resources for timber framing. Yeah, also, of course. And there's also a really good, uh, website called timberframe.org or I'm sorry. Uh, what's it called? Um, at Timber Frame HQ, <laughs> and they have a, a monthly newsletter that has informative uh, pictures on uh, different joinery and different articles each month, and it also lists uh, different workshops as well.
0: Excellent. I'll be sure to put all of those up there. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Skip. That was a very informative chat. I know I learned a lot, and I hope our listeners got a lot out of it too. Uh, perhaps we can stay in touch, and we can do a follow-up sometime okay sounds great maybe we can talk about tools (laughs) oh yes (laughs) i'll definitely be calling you back for an episode on that (laughs) all right thanks oliver all right you have a good day bye bye so before we wrap up this show for the week i've got some exciting news about the upcoming months and i'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of
2: atitlan organics shad Goodsey. hey buddy what's new oh man so much is happening first off though i just want to say thanks for having me man I really love your podcast, and I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, we've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the intro to permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward, man. It's life changing. But like I said, what I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our intro to permaculture courses. Literally, this two week offering is like, Possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's, that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well.
0: I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with
2: natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things, too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive, and probably my favorite part is that we have this world, international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy, and honestly, loads more alternative, blow your mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening.
0: Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition, so this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered.
2: That's a great idea. Because, I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. That way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So, hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven
0: people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the
2: upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to attilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects.
0: So this is Oliver Gauthier and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.